welcome to another inspirational message from Brave Church UK. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, open up at um, Ephesians chapter 3. As a church, we've been journeying through the book of Ephesians. We are at the beginning of chapter 3. And, uh, and we're going to look uh, this morning at what Paul has to tell us in the first half of chapter 3. And there are three things that he challenges us uh, on. But I think the general theme of, of Ephesians chapter 3 is this. Uh, it's a price, a price worth paying. A price worth paying. I don't know in life um, what you're paying for or if it's worth paying. But everyone's paying something. Think about this. I, I don't know whether you've... Um, oh, this is really boomy up here, if there's any way of just taking me down a little bit. Um, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> and I've ruined it for you. Sorry, Stephen. Um, but uh, everyone's paying for something. I don't know if you've got any subscriptions, uh, whether any of you are, have got a gym membership that you pay for monthly. I don't know whether you've got uh, uh, a Netflix. Anyone got Netflix? Hands up. Show of hands. And that's what you do with your life, really. You've lost hours in Netflix. And uh, you've got a subscription. And, and, and I don't know what else you've got. Maybe some of you got Sky and, um, and you pay 60 pounds for your Sky subscription or something like that. I don't know uh, what you pay for uh, that comes out in, in terms of your monthly outgoings. And I don't know whether you'd say for what you get, it's worth it or not. Only you can determine that. Shoot, true? I don't know whether uh, you like to go out for a nice meal. Anyone like to go out to a nice meal? Anyone like to go for the cheapest meal possible? Yeah? 50-50. Anyone want to go out for a nice meal? Yeah? So you know, you know that when, if you go out for uh, just cheapest meal possible with the, the maximum amount of food you can get and all you can eat, or whether you go out for a nice meal, you know when that bill comes, there's going to be a difference in price. And you've got to determine whether you think it's worth paying the price or not. True? Everyone's pain in life. It's not just um, in your finances. Actually, your life, you are paying for your life and the things in your life. You're paying in terms of your time. You're, you're paying in terms of your involvement. You're paying in terms of your effort, your energy, your thought, your care, your, your attention, your, your intention. All of it's a cost. And when you look at your life, are you happy with your life? And are you happy with the price you're paying for that life? Because everyone's paying. The, the, the life that you have, the person that you are, you're paying. In some way, you're paying. Your habits, your effort, your attention, what you give time to, your marriage. It, it's what you want it to be, and you've got to pay for it. You've got to choose whether you want a, a life that shines God or, or a life that shines self. Either one, you're going to pay for. Do you get what I'm saying this morning? Because you're going to have to spend energy, time, investment into getting what you want. Do you want a healthy marriage? Or do you want a marriage built around you? Either one, you're going to have to pay for it. Do you want kids that love Jesus? Or do you want dysfunctional kids? Because you're going to pay for it. Not just in terms of a consequence. What you're doing is a cost. You're paying for it. Do you want to be part of a community that, uh, of, of God that impacts the world around it? 
Or, or do you want to be part of a people filled with apathy? Either one costs, and you've got to determine if it's worth paying for it. When, when Paul talks to us in, in Ephesians chapter 3, he talks to us about the life that God's called us to, the life that God's called him to. And here's what he says of his life, and I wonder if we could say it of our lives too. He says, the cost of living the life that God's called me to is a price worth paying. I wonder if you look at your own life and the outcomes that you're getting, the, the state that you find yourself in, I wonder if you could say, this is where I am. It's got challenges, it's got obstacles, it's got ups, it's got downs, it's got twists, it's got turns. But I tell you what, it's worth paying the cost. And Paul tells us three things that, that help him ground himself in that belief that the life that he's living is worth paying the cost for. And these three things are in Ephesians chapter 3. Number one is this, if you're taking notes, is that he's a prisoner of the prince. He's a prisoner of the prince. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in this reading, this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, that it is now been revealed by the Spirit of God and His holy apostles and His prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs according to Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. That's you and me, we're included. We've been grafted in. I'm so thankful for Jesus. Anybody else? That he's grafted us into the family of God. He says this. This is Paul. He's speaking. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. And I love this. Verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people. We've discovered over the last few weeks as we... We've examined Ephesians. We've discovered that Paul, as he writes this epistle, as he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul himself is in chains. He's in prison. He, he's in a Roman jail. Actually, we know that, that he, was, he was taken prisoner for being for the Gentiles. That the Jews took offense at Paul being preaching the message of God's love, not just to them, but to the Gentile world as well, and including them in all that Jesus has done. That's why he's in chains. That's why he's imprisoned. And he's in a Roman jail, which is surprising to me then when Paul writes this. He says, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. And he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In other words, he understands that the life that he's living and the things that he's given himself to are worth paying the cost for. And he's quite proud in the fact that I might be in jail, but I'm in jail because I've preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have, I have preached to the best of my ability the love of God to all. That's a pretty, pretty significant statement, don't you think? I wonder... In life, uh, what would we be willing to be imprisoned with for the glory of God? He says, I'm willing to be locked up for you Gentiles 
because I'm so committed to the life that God's called me to. He says this, he says, I am a servant, or another word in one of the other translations is minister. A servant or a minister. Literally, the the word that is used in in the context of Ephesians chapter 3, when he says, I'm a servant of the gospel, I'm a minister of this, it's equivalent to that of a table waiter who is always ready to do the bidding of his customers. In other words, he says, I'm a servant of this gospel that, that God's got a hold of me and now I'm willing to do whatever he asks to serve him, to wait on him. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Think about the words and the language that he uses. He says, I, I'm the least of the least of God's holy people. Think about Paul's journey for a moment. Think about where he's come from. It, it, we know that from the scriptures, we know that he's been trained in the best schools. We know he's, he's, had, he's had phenomenal input and, and a phenomenal education. We know that of Paul. In fact, elsewhere it calls him a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, like this is creme de la creme. And here's what he says of himself. I'm the least of the least. He says, all, all that I considered wisdom before Jesus, I consider foolishness in light of Jesus. That literally he gave himself to the imprisonment of Jews, of, of Christians as a Jewish man. He gave himself to that. He, he thought in his own wisdom and his own intellect, he thought he was doing Jew, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, a service, a great service. And he says, no, I'm the least of the least. I'm the least of the least. I wonder in life, I wonder how we'd view ourselves. There's just to Paul, he's, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And there's an element which he, he's lowered himself and observed amazing humility. Gabriel says this, he says, The more we know of the blessed mystery of God's masterpiece, the less we shall think of ourselves and delight to take the lowest place. Truth learned or knowledge gained in spiritual things, which does not humble us and make us think less and less of ourselves, is a dangerous thing. Here's what Paul's saying, here's what Gabriel is saying. That when you realize what God's done, When you realize God's way of doing things, when you understand his wisdom, not earthly wisdom, but his wisdom, the natural response is to humble yourself, not puff yourself up. And for Paul, he says, I'm the least of the least. I'm the servant of the gospel. I'm a prisoner of the the prince. It's not Rome that's enslaved me. I'm a slave to the cause of Jesus. That whatever I have to go through, whatever challenge I have to face, I do it in the knowledge that I've submitted myself to the cause of Christ. That's a a crazy call, right? That's a crazy challenge for each and every one of us. And your silence speaks a thousand words. Because that's tough. To put Christ before us and to live for him. I've got a um, a one-year-old, nearly one-year-old dog called Bella. She's a black Labrador. And uh, she is crazy. Like full of energy. Anyone, got, anyone ever had or got a Labrador? Yeah, a few of you. You know my pain. Like they are, they are amazing. They are loyal. She's, she's probably the, the most dog-like dog we've ever had. Um, she's got her issues, but she's not as dysfunctional as some of the other canines that have frequented our house. 
And, uh, and one of the things I love to, to do about it is take her for a walk. The only thing is she can walk for hours and still have the same amount of energy as she had before we went on the walk. And I go home tired and I look at her and she's ready to go again. Like, come on, what are we doing now? You're like, just shut up, sit down and go to sleep. I read this when I, when I was buying a dog, that the dog on average sleeps between uh, 15 to 20 hours per day. That's a lie. If you're doing research on getting a dog, don't believe it. It's not true. It might be true of other dogs, not true of Labradors. She's ready to go. And one thing that we bought to try and tire her out, we thought, how can we, how can we tire her out? So we bought um, one of these ball slingers. Have you ever seen those ball slingers? Like literally, all your dog walkers are like, yeah, everyone else is like, what the heck are you on about? Like literally, you put the ball inside a plastic thing and you whiz the ball as far as you can. It flies out of the ball slinger. And, uh, and the dog goes and fetches it and brings it back, which sounds idealistic, doesn't it? Like, I'm going to put a ball in a thing, I'm going to sling it, she's going to run and get it, she's going to come back to me, and I'm going to do it again and look like a sophisticated dog owner. You do know, by the way, if you get a dog, every other dog owner starts to judge you. When you're walking that dog, how they heed your command, how obedient they are, you know that you know you've got those dog walkers on a dog walk that are looking down their nose at you because you can't control your dog. I'm one of those who can't control his dog. <laughs> and I'll be on a walk with her and I'll be throwing a ball and, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, it's amazing. I've got this thing. It's going to tire her out. It's going to absolutely tire her out. It's going to be the answer. And I put the ball in the sling thing and I, and I slit the sling thing. I'm sophisticated in my knowledge of this. And, and I threw it, and, which worked amazingly. She loved it. She sprinted off after the ball. She got the ball and she kept the ball. <laughs> she wouldn't bring the ball back to me. And I'm stood there, you know, those moments on a walk. You're looking around to see if anyone's around. Bella! <laughs> Bella! Come here! Come here, you little thing. And you start chasing her. I started chasing her. I started chasing her down the road. I'm trying to grab hold of her, grabbing her by a collar. She won't give me the ball. I thought, right, next time I go on a walk, I'm going to try a different strategy. I'm going to take treats with me in my pocket. And then when she comes and gives me the ball, I'm going to give her a treat because I'm so clever. I'm so wise. On a walk, I, I get out, I put the ball in the sling thing and sling it off. And she runs after it, gets the ball, she keeps the ball. I shout, Bella, come here, what's this? I pull a treat out of my pocket. She looks at the treat, she runs the other way. <laughs> she runs the other way. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, now I look stupid. So bear in mind, like just to put this image in your head, she's got a pink collar and a pink lead. I'm out walking a dog with a pink collar and a pink lead with a sling thing, and she won't even listen to me, even when she's coming to get the ball, when I'm trying to get the ball off her. Like, it's a problem. It's an issue. And so I'm shouting out. I'm shouting my head off, Bella, Bella, come here. And then you see someone walk out the trees with a dog. Come here, good girl. Come on. Like, to make you look less angry on your walk. And it was stressing me out. It made the serene walk that I was going on with my dog stressful. Anyone feel my pain? None of you, you're much better than me, sophisticated dog walkers. Feel my pain. And then I thought to myself, one day I'm out on this walk, she won't bring the ball. I thought, why am I stressing about this? You ever, you ever think of those thoughts? Why am I stressing about this? She's missing out, not me. I've made it about me. She's missing out in the game. So the game that we could play together, 
the game that she enjoys. She could expend energy. She could do what a retriever's men do and retrieve something rather than keep it. They should change their name. Uh, instead of retrievers, they should be called keepers. <laughs> like, like she's the one missing out. And I thought to myself, you know what? Today, as I go on this walk, I'm not going to call her to come back. I'm going to throw the ball and I'm going to let her come when she's ready. And you know what? It worked. It worked. You don't just get the Bible in this church. You get some dog advice as well. <laughs> Write that down in review on Facebook. Great church. Good advice on dogs. And, 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 I, and I thought to myself, I'm going to keep doing it. So I'd throw it away. She'd go off and run, the, run and get the ball. And I'd just whistle, ignore her. She'd come back with the ball, trying to tempt me into trying to fight with her and make it a game. And I'd look the other way. And then all of a sudden, she dropped the ball. And I'd look sophisticated. I said, good girl. Picked it up. But I would wait until someone was around to see what was taking place before I picked up the ball and then looked at the other dog walker and went. <laughs> she, she came and she laid the ball down at my feet because she began to understand this was for her benefit. Here's what I think Paul's getting at as we go back to Ephesians. That he's understood what it is to carry his own life in his own mouth. And now he understands what it is to lay his life down at the feet of Jesus. That he understands that it is far more beneficial to submit your life to someone and something that is greater than you. But here's what I've discovered in my own life. Every now and then, I'll pick it back up and try and run with it myself. And Paul says, I've understood what it is to daily, constantly come and lay my life down at the feet of Jesus. You know what? It's stressful carrying your own life. It'll wear you out. It's not fun. But when you'll come and you'll lay the ball down at the feet of Jesus, your life, and say, come on, let's do this thing together. Not in your own strength, not in your own ability, not in your own wisdom. If anyone could have done it, it was Paul. Hebrew of Hebrews, wise, great upbringing, great intellect. God grabbed out of his life and he says this, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I'm a servant, a table waiter for him. And I consider myself in the context of everybody else as the least of the least. Because I've submitted my life and it's a price worth paying. When you come into relationship with God, here's what you do. You lay your life down on the altar. I think we probably, in the Western world, probably done people a disservice by saying, come to Jesus, he'll make everything better. And he's, you know, peace and prosperity are yours, which are true. But the real decision you're making when you come to Jesus isn't to have a better life. It's to give him your life. It's to lay your life down on the altar. Paul says this in Romans. He says, you are a living sacrifice of praise. Where do sacrifices live in a biblical context? A sacrifice lives on the altar. It's willing and ready to be sacrificed. And here's what Paul understands. I'm the least of the least because I've given everything that I am. On my best day, I'm not even close to being what God needs me to be. 
is what Paul says. And I'm a prisoner for the sake of the prince. Sometimes when we present the, the message of Jesus, it's look at all the benefits you could have. Well, you've got to weigh the cost. Is it a price worth paying? Because for Paul, it was. It wasn't, yeah, today, in an emotional moment, I give my life to you, God. But tomorrow, I pick it back up and I run with it myself. He says, no. My whole life is his. And if I'm sat in a jail, it's for his name. And it's for his cause. And it's for his sake. So it's not my situation that holds me captive. It's Jesus Christ and the cause of him. Point number two, if you take your notes. He then talks, he talks about, he's, he's a prisoner for the prince, but then he talks about the call of the church, and this will blow your mind. He says this in verse eight. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Think about that. This is Paul. Like he's telling us in chapter 3, God's revealed to him a mystery and now he's making the mystery known. And the fact that he's given, been given special knowledge and, and helps show other people that special knowledge doesn't puff him up. It causes him to lower himself even more. He says, I'm the least of the least of all God's people because this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden to God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold, literally many folds, multi-sided, multifaceted wisdom of God. You can't figure it out. Just when you think you've got God boxed off, there's another element, there's another spin, there's another side. It's got many folds. He says that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that it was accomplished in Christ Jesus. This is going to blow your mind. The role of the church is twofold. And number one, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, to make known among men the mystery of God, Christ crucified, forgiveness of sins. That's number one. Number two, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers of heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, the church, you and me, are God's lesson to the universe of God's grace and God's wisdom. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? He says, I'm making known that literally, this is what he says. He says, the angelic forces that do exist are watching you. That's what he says. Spooky. Turn to the person next to you and go, do, 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 do. Like they're watching you. The, the angels are watching the church to find out, listen to this, to find out more about who God is. You are a lesson to the universe. Think about this. If, um, if a TV crew turned up at church today and they were looking for volunteers to, to sign up for a new reality TV show, they were calling it The Only Way is Aussie. The Only Way is Aussie. And they wanted to find about what, what, what life is like in the rural village of Oswald Twistle. Your life, your values, your family, all that kind of stuff. They, would, they came into your home and they were going to set up TV cameras in your home, not in the bathroom. That would be weird. But they were going to set up, they want to watch your life. A TV film crew were going to follow you 24-7 and find out really who you were. How many people would be up for that? 
to see you at your best, Perry, thank you. See you at your best, best and see you at your worst. Oh, he's just put his hand down. Like they, they, That's what they were going to do. They were going to watch you. Here's what Paul says. He pulls back the curtain for a moment. And he says that there are beings that exist that are beyond you and me. Angelic forces. And he says they are watching the church. And they're seeing if the church displays the character, wisdom, and nature of God and his amazing grace. How would that affect how you live? If you knew that. Well, that's what Paul says. He says they're watching. Just for those of you who think I'm making this up. says this in 2 Kings chapter, chapter 6, verse 17. This is Elisha. The king of Aram has sent an army against Elisha. And Elisha's cool and calm, even though there's an army awaiting outside his door. A natural army. And the servant of Elisha says, what's going on? Why are you not worried? Why are you not afraid? And here's what it says in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. It says, And Elisha prayed for his servant, and he said, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Then the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he looked around and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That Elisha is in a room with a natural army coming against him, but he understands that more are those who are for him than those who are against him. Because it's not just about the natural that he's seen, it's about the supernatural that's taking place all around him. Powerful, isn't it? He says that, that literally heaven is watching and learning from your life. Scott says this, he says, it is as if the great drama is being enacted. History is the theater. The world is the stage. And the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. But who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers, even the heavenly places. The New Testament teaches us this. It tells us that the angels rejoice when a sinner comes to know Jesus. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. That when, when someone gives their heart and life to Jesus, heaven rejoices. Angels do. The writer to the, the Hebrews tells us this. It tells us that angels are sent to minister to the saints. Think about that. That God sends his angels to minister to you and me. Does that blow your mind? Like heaven is watching. Bruce says this, he says the church thus appears to be God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. The mystery of God's will will be administered in the fullness of time when the things in heaven and the things on earth are brought together in Christ. The church here, right here, right now, you and me, people who believe in Jesus, are literally the trial run, if you will, the trailer for the great reconciliation that is to come with a new heaven and a new earth. What a great promise. That what we see before us here is not it. But there is a new creation 
a recreation when all things and everyone is made new in God. Third thing is this, and band, if you want to come, we'll get ready to finish. He says that he's a prisoner of peace. He's led his life on the altar. He says the church has a call to make known the wisdom of God, not just to those around them in this world, but to the literally the, the principalities in the heavenly places. And then he says this, number, ver, number three, verse number 12, and this blows my mind. He says this, he says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Great things, aren't they? Great gifts. Freedom and confidence. Here's where he says, verse 13. He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Sat in a jail, writing this letter. And he doesn't just write this letter from that prison, from that jail, in the midst of suffering. He's, he's writing a letter to other believers to encourage them in their faith. And he says, I want you to see suffering in a new way. He says there is suffering, there is significance in suffering. That's what Paul says. He says don't be discouraged. So, so we know that the Ephesians must have been discouraged because Paul's in change because he's brought the message to them. The Gentiles. And they're discouraged and Paul says no, 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 no. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. How can Paul say in the midst of trial and pain and suffering, how can Paul say, don't be discouraged? Well, he says in the verse before, he says that in Christ, he's given us freedom and he's given us confidence. I think Paul lets us know the source of his strength in the face of suffering are the freedom which God has given him Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Think about that. Death does not hold a sting for Paul. So the fear of death does not drive him. The freedom that he's found in Christ, that's what drives him. He says, in Christ, he has given us freedom. The freedom not just to, to have God right here, right now, but to, to as we sang today, to be in his presence for eternity. Love that lyric, don't you, in the song that we sang, I'm caught up in your presence. That's the freedom that we've been given. The presence of God, both here and after this life. Freedom. And he says this, and I've, and I've been given confidence. Now this confidence, it's not rooted in self. It's not rooted in I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling confident. I can go at this. I can attack this. I, I can push through this suffering. That's not the confidence Paul's talking about. He's talking about the confidence that comes from believing that what God has said and done is true. That's where confidence comes from. It's the confidence that when God said it, he believed it. Here's the crazy thing about suffering and about trial and about struggle. It does not produce faith, it reveals faith. It's in suffering and trial and hardship that you find out if what you believe is really what you believe. True? 
It's not, it's not the place you learn faith. It's the place that reveals faith. Do I trust God to pull me through? Do I trust God that actually he's building a new creation and that all things will be made new? Do I trust him in that season? Do I trust him with what I've got right here and right now? Have I got the confidence to believe that he is my everything? I might sing it. I might say it. That's easy. But do I believe it? And he says it's in the face of suffering that I found this freedom and I found this confidence. Paul, as he's in prison, in this Roman jail, he writes Ephesians, he likes, writes Colossians, he writes Philippians, and he writes Philemon. So what will we allow God to write with our lives in the face of trials and in the face of pain? What letters will we be to the world around us? It's a challenge, isn't it? James chapter 1 says this. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. When are you mature and complete? When you've been harvested. When you've breathed your last breath. You are mature and complete. Your new body in a new creation. So what, what the writer James tells us is this, is that God is working in us and through us in the face of challenge and obstacle and suffering and pain to make us mature and complete. He says, not lacking anything. What a great promise. That in the next life, you'll lack nothing. 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 Nothing will be lacked when you are mature and when you are complete. He says this, verse 5, right here, right now. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives you generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Here's what I've discovered, and I think here's what Paul's discovered in the face of suffering. That in the face of suffering, you need wisdom. You need wisdom to understand, God, what are you doing in this process? God, what are you revealing about yourself? God, what's happening here? God, how should I respond? God, how should I act? That requires wisdom. Not an earthly wisdom, not I'm gathering around with my friends, we're going to talk about how this should, should work. No, he said, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him go to the newspaper. No, that's not what he said. Let him go to the gossip columns. No, that's not what he said. Let him go to his friends. No, that's not what he said. He said, let him go to God who gives wisdom freely. I don't know about you, I need wisdom. When I'm, when I'm walking through stuff and, and I can't make sense of it and it hurts and there's pain and, and there's loss and I've got to let some things go and I've got to grab hold of some stuff and, and it just feels complex, doesn't it? And what James says is you, what you need is, you need the presence of God, but you need wisdom. You need wisdom to act how God would act. You need wisdom to think how God would think. You need wisdom to have a perspective that's above your earthly circumstance, but it's from a heavenly point of view. I need wisdom. And I'm guessing you do too. That's the end of this week's podcast. We hope that it inspired you. For any more information, visit bravechurch.co.uk.